Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of EdTech Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. I'm glad you found us. With me today, Liam Pisano from the EduLab Group. Liam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Nice to, nice to be with everyone here. Uh, there are several reasons why I'm excited to have you on the show, uh, two of which I know EduLab is involved at an international level when it comes to, to EdTech. Also, you have a lot of emphasis on the use of assessment and data, which uh, I, I want to get into as well. Uh, I guess the first, uh, after you kind of give us a little bit of a history of EduLab, maybe kind of give us a background of, of, of your work, I'd like you to help me figure out how during a pandemic, uh, the ed tech industry in general was able to not only survive it, but it seems to be thriving, right? I mean, the, the, the industry is in just a, in a, in a general state of almost overheatedness, I would think. Um, it was all it took for me to remember my mask to get out of the car to go into the supermarket. And in the meantime, there just seemed to be companies being created, there have been mergers happening. But Let's get started. Tell us a little bit about EduLab and your work, maybe what was happening before the pandemic, and give us a little bit of a, a temperature of where you are now. Great, yeah. So, so EduLab Capital Partners is an early stage venture fund uh, focused on education technologies, as you know, across the learner continuum from K through 12 to higher education to workforce development. Um, just to give you a background on who we are, we have a team of eight investment professionals with offices in both Boston and Tokyo. Our primary limited partner, EduLab, uh, runs the largest English proficiency test in Japan as a publicly traded company on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. So we're a first-time fund, and we've built a portfolio of 11 companies over the past two years to date, with those entities based in the U.S., Canada, Israel, Japan, Vietnam, and the Philippines. So as you mentioned, we're, we're truly a global platform. And, and we're investing in companies that are post-ideation with the product and the marketplace, scaling efficiently, but not yet ready for a full traditional series A investment. So that's where we, we believe there's a significant gap in the funding landscape. Interesting. So, you know, in my years of covering ed tech, and again, I, I refer to it as BP before the pandemic, um, you had, from, from my perspective, a very kind of segmented market when it comes to education technology. You had the United States and their 15,000 school districts as its own kind of entity. And then you had you kind of had the rest of the planet when it came to um, the development and application of technologies. Now, uh, during the pandemic here, I've been reading more and more about how the rest of the world and the development and the application of these technologies has, has grown incredibly uh, separate from the United States. Is there a place where we're going to start to see that we, we talk about the global market of education technology as opposed to kind of these segmented regional uh, aspects? Well, I think what we're seeing is a recognition of commonality throughout business models that are operating across the globe. And so our end users are based in the U.S. and in Europe and in, in Asia. So it used to be that a business model that was successful in Asia most likely might not be successful in the US, whether it was the difference between a B2B strategy versus a B2C strategy, um, whether it was the difference between um, the end user or the, the parent family, the, the amount of expendable income that they had or they would spend on education. 
I think what we're seeing is, we're, you know, in a virtual environment, we're, there's recognition of commonality. And, and so that has galvanized the industry to a certain extent uh, and helped us understand what is successful, where and why. And I think investors across the board in this industry are spending time in places that they hadn't spent time in before. Um, whether that occurs post-pandemic is, is to be seen. Uh, but what I, what I think it's done is really created a, a flatter environment where um, there's just a recognition of, of different business models uh, that are trying to solve similar problems in, in very different places. And so that to me has been an intellectual exercise incredibly stimulating and, and somewhat overwhelming uh, because our world has changed so significantly over the past 16 months. You think that it, the, the platform that we're having a conversation on right now, um, do you think that that's helped contribute to kind of this flattening or like the, the ease in which um, communications amongst companies and investors on, on a global reach where maybe it just always seemed exotic that you had to get on an airplane and travel 15 hours and, and endure jet lag and and, and be in depth into a particular culture versus now we're all the Brady Bunch, right? And, and our, and our, on our separate squares here having conversations. Has that actually kind of helped um, made these sort of interactions less uh, cumbersome, less complex? Yeah, I, I, as an investor, I would, uh, who values the, uh, the face-to-face component of, a, of an investment process. I, I hope it's flattened it in a good way, but um, it, I, I hope we're not completely reverting to a virtual environment going forward because I think there's a lot that you miss. And um, as much as I hate the jet lag and I experienced a lot of it over the past, I've experienced a lot of it over the past three years. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for, um, especially in early stage investing, there's a lot to be said face-to-face um, uh, encounters and uh, just a learning process of spending time with an entrepreneur. W- with that said, I, it certainly opened up markets and, um, and created a, uh, probably a, a leveling of the playing field that, that is a good thing. Um, so what the hybrid model looks like from an investor standpoint will be pretty interesting because right now we're all on a trajectory that looks like a hockey stick. And I think that and to a certain extent, everybody's high-fiving and saying, well, this isn't, isn't this incredible, um, despite you know, the negatives of what, what's gone on. Um, there will be a, an evening out and um, managing a, a portfolio in, in a downturn is a lot different than managing it in an upturn uh, in an industry's trajectory. So, um, and that requires a lot more hands-on um, kind of face-to-face experience. Uh, so, so to me, again, it's, it's, there's a lot to be seen and um, we'll, we'll see what the aftermath looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, another uh, aspect, uh, I think of the, the many, many different disruptions that have occurred as a result of this experience, uh, but specifically in the use of ed tech is a greater agency when it comes to teachers and faculty members using these technologies and maybe having an influence over what works and what doesn't and what maybe in terms of recommendations of certain 
technologies. Uh, always been a very, from my perspective, a very top-down sort of situation in the U.S. You know, the stakeholder would be the superintendent or the director of technology, um, figuring out what technology they're going to purchase and apply to their district. Three months later, it gets down to a, a, a three-day workshop on right before Labor Day, and here, here, teacher, here's here's what you're going to use, and here's how you're going to use it, and whether it got used or not was always um, a question. I know outside the U.S. that there was a similar model uh, where you would have ministers of education who might buy a piece of technology or an application for an entire country, right? And that that same sort of thing. The past 15 months. Uh, a lot of teachers were kind of thrown to the wind saying, okay, well, we'll try to keep you connected, but do what you can to keep your kids together and find your own curriculum and find your own applications and, and put those things together. Do you think that that will have an effect on the way the industry uh, creates and develops and, and sells software? Do you think the educator might have a greater agency now as a result of all this? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's, the culmination, I think, of a lot of hard work um, on behalf of people in the industry. Um, that said, I think, you know, five years ago, we would go to EdSurge, would host events for educators where they would test technologies. And there would be this um, idea of exactly what you just described. Um, the, the educator having the agency to decide what's right for them in their classroom, as opposed to things coming from the top down. And I think to a certain extent, now that education technology probably became a need to have as opposed to nice to have, within an RFP or procurement process, now if you've got product A and product B and product A is the less expensive one, but nobody uses it. And traditionally that might have been what procurement agent would go with and product B is maybe a little bit more expensive, but everybody uses it. Well, now product B has voice. And so to me, this is, this is kind of developed for full circle. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the, the husband of an educator. My, my mom is an educator and, um, you know, my sister's an educator. And so I kind of kind of get their pain to a certain extent um, and they have 24 hours in their day. And so I think this experience has, has opened up a, a product line to them to a certain extent and given them more of an, a, a voice in how they, uh, they potentially could manage their classroom in the future. Hopefully it, it, it creates better, better outcomes. I mean, that's the ultimate goal when, when it comes down to what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all desperate to, to, to find some silver linings out of, out of all the past several months to see how we can improve things going forward. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I, I know that, that there's an emphasis on uh, the ideas and the technologies and techniques behind the uh, assessment and the use of, a, uh, of data for assessment and some of Edgy Lab's work. Uh, amongst many of the different um, disruptions, um, we found really, I don't know if it's the destruction of, but uh, at least the damaging to uh, some of the traditional ways of uh, assessing students. Uh, I have a, a senior in high school and a sophomore in high school who, who already their 
their thoughts and their worries about standardized testing when it comes to the ACT or uh, SAT are completely different than my daughters, who's only 24 months older than uh, they are and who really worried about that stuff. All of a sudden, doesn't seem to be that big a deal. All of a sudden, states across the United States um, didn't have state testing. You know, and what were the results out of that? Uh, and then at the same time, they're starting to look at ways in which maybe there's a whole, a, a more holistic way to uh, assess students. I, I hear a lot of talk about micro-credentialing and a lot of competency-based uh, assessment versus some of the traditional uses of standardized testing. How have you seen and, and how has your perspective of assessment changed as a result of the, the, our most recent disruptions here? Yeah, um, we've, I think it's, the obvious answer is it's changed within the con confines of our own portfolio where we've invested recently in a, uh, in a company that's, that's focused on writing assistance and essay writing for uh, admissions. Um, and that business has done prompts based in New York, uh, has done exceptionally well over the past 12 months because there's just, there's just more demand for the product. Um, where we head back to, I don't know, uh, and I wouldn't pretend to know, but I do think it is when we're thinking about competency-based as opposed to, to test-based assessment. Um, on the whole, I think we're in a, uh, we're in a good place um, but, a, but a much different place. And, and so I think there will be, just like everything else, I think entrepreneurs and are, are, um, are malleable and they're smart and they, they figure out where trends are going. Uh, so we'll see an undercurrent of, of new strategies that will be focused on different ways to assist the learner and assist the student within this pathway. I, another aspect um, that I've noticed in my conversations is um, you talked about uh, you know, nice to have versus need to have. But the ideas of um, mental health and the ideas of social emotional learning techniques um, have become front and center for a lot of tech companies where they might not that might not have been there before. Uh, the focus would have been on you know raising literacy rates, et cetera, et cetera. Because of this group trauma we've all had, I've seen that many companies now start first with the importance of the well-being of the student before they get into the particulars. Is that reflected at all in the investment community? I mean, do you see uh, a, a new appreciation for what social emotional learning even means? Without a doubt, and I think it's, it was described to me recently as training you know, the full, full set of muscles in whether it's your arms, your legs, you know, you can't just train your bicep, you have to train your, your tricep as well. And, you know, we, we focus so much on pedagogy. What about the well-being of the student? And we should be focused on the well-being of the student headed back into the, into the classroom in the fall. And there's going to be a lot of collateral damage. And uh, I, I think, and I hope that our industry will, will pivot accordingly and, and back some of these strategies that will be focused on the well-being of the student, how they've adjusted to what's happened to them and how they're gonna readjust going back into a classroom that, that may or may not look different from what they've experienced in the past. So I think there is an increased focus. I mean, we, we kind of 
we learn about these trends as we go to conferences and, and talk to our peers about what they're focused on. Um, sometimes it's an echo chamber, sometimes it's not, um, but it's important to listen. Uh, and what I, I have been hearing a lot about um, SEL strategies in the marketplace today. Yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about uh, the infusion of funds that's, that seems to be coming into the U.S. specifically uh, into, into education. Um, you know, the, the CARES Act, um, the details there are, are pretty significant. There's some pretty significant funds uh, coming out from telcos in terms of, again, ad addressing the, the, the digital equity aspect of things in terms of subsidized access to devices and, 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 and to uh, actually just facility-based internet access for, for schools. Um, again, from the, from the investment perspective, does that change your strategies when you see that? I mean, are there gonna be some new dynamics between the way that you see the companies that you're investing in um, have relations with maybe not only the federal government, but maybe the state government or, or school districts? Yes, in a way, yes, in a way, no. Um, you know, there's two statistics I can, I can point to both on the supply and demand side are more than $3 billion raised by ed tech companies in the first half of 2021, just 2.3 billion raised in all of 2020. You know, that's the supply side. Demand side, $31 million, 31 million students provided computers or tablets by school districts or administrators. Um, both are both are great statistics, but at the end of the day, the connectivity is a is a real problem, and I'm I'm happy to see that that telcos are trying to solve this. We did a roundtable right after COVID hit um, in the spring of 2020 for a group of educators in rural Texas, expecting to talk about the products that they would they were using um, in in new ways and and gain some insights and. Uh, provide you know, forum. Instead, we talked about connectivity. Instead, we talked about teachers getting into vans to go to drive to supermarkets where there might be a Wi-Fi, where there might be Wi-Fi access. Um, it was it was eye-opening, and so this is a this is a real problem that uh, you know we're all looking forward to um, other entities trying to solve. Um, so I'm not sure that answers your question, but. Um, I think the entrepreneur will have to learn if there are these pockets of capital and uh, uh, pockets of availability from a procurement standpoint, they'll have to learn how to work with a, with a public entity as opposed to a private entity. But that's really always been the case with this industry. It's a mix of public and private sector and, and you, you have to learn how to navigate or else you really won't succeed. Yeah. Well, finally, I knew the toughest part of this conversation would be to end it. Uh, there are so many different aspects where we can approach and, and, and talk about these things. But maybe we could wrap up by if you can give us a little bit of your, your what you see in your crystal ball over the next uh, the, the next few months and years. I know you mentioned the hockey stick in terms of acceleration. How long is that hockey stick or when, when does it turn into uh, when does it start to, uh, to, to flatten off? Well, um... Look, we, we think this is a moment in time for the industry um, where we're nice to have became need to have. Um, my hope is that there's an integration of both virtual and in-person, and that leads to a better product. I think 
all of the, the dollars that have been poured into this sector, um, we hope will create better availability for, uh, for the end user. And um, whether that means displacing um, incumbent service providers or providing better efficiency. And we really think that transitions in the learning learner continuum are gonna present opportunities to increase efficiency and, and facilitate access to, to social capital resources and really redefine pathways. So I think it's a pretty exciting time um, for, for everyone in this industry and, and hope we can continue to solve problems, whether that means you know, at the, at the rate that we're trying to solve them now, with the dollars that we're trying to solve them with, um, we'll see. Uh, but I think the trajectory is, is really a compelling one for both um, sector-focused investor and for generalist investor. And, and hopefully that uh, trickles down to the entrepreneur and the end user. And hopefully that means um, some more jet lag in, in, your new, in your near future as we, as we get back to normal. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> That's excellent. William, thank you so much for your time and your insights. I think it's uh, well, not only a positive viewpoint of, of what's going on, but some things that our, our audience can really take away uh, as they apply their own strategies uh, going forward. So I appreciate your time and, and those insights. Yeah, thank you for your time, Kevin. I appreciate it. And, and, and thanks, everybody, for watching. And I hope you click around and find another episode of EdTech Today soon.